partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. And the time is just about 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 Bangor. Stay tuned for Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Alewives, or river herring, spend a good portion of their lives in the sea, but like salmon, they swim up rivers to breed in freshwater lakes and ponds. Once an important food source for humans, alewives remain critical, a critical link in the, food, the natural food chain and are favored for bait in lobstering. Since the European settlement in Maine, alewives haven't had an easy time getting upstream. But as far back as the 1800s, Maine towns were establishing fish ladders to help them around man-made dams. In our program this morning, we'll talk about restoring alewives, and we're going to focus on the story of the Damrascotta Mills fish ladder. Glad we can have some guests in the studio who can help us with that uh, conversation. Deb Wilson is a select woman in the town of Nobleboro and a volunteer in the effort to restore the fish ladder at Damrascotta Mills. Welcome to you, Deb. Well, thank you for having me. And we're, she's joined by Russ Williams, who's also a volunteer and uh, has a, a home right at the head of, of where the alewives are, are swimming upstream. And that's Russ Williams. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Russ. Thanks, Ron. Well, maybe we could get um, each of you to give uh, um, our listeners just a, a, a profile, um, starting with Deb. You're a select woman in uh, the town of, of Nobleboro. Tell us a little bit about that position and then how you got involved in alewives. I understand it's kind of a lifelong interest in, in fisheries <laughs> anthropology, you said. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, um, I actually started my work with the fish ladder before I became a select person, mm. um, and I started getting to know Damerscotta Mills as an archaeologist. I did, um, did a survey of Damerscotta Lake um, as an archaeological project back in the late 80s and early 90s, got to know the place and actually moved there. And once I um, lived there, I started getting involved in the fish ladder and very quickly started helping the towns um, because I had some background in um, licensing and that sort of thing, um, helped the towns. And very soon, it became clear that being a select person would be helpful. Um, select people in both Newbleboro and Newcastle are members of the fish committee for the fish ladder. And so it would give me a role um, and an official position to actually work on the fish ladder. Mm. We'll come back to that, that historical piece of, of how these two towns got together mm -hmm. in just a minute. But uh, uh, Russ Williams, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved besides being right next to the, to the stream. Well, we got involved because we are right next to the stream. We've lived there for 30 years, and uh, we really didn't know much about the fish ladder when we moved in, and, and that next spring, the fish started to arrive, and it was just very, very exciting to see all these fish coming up into Damariscotta Lake. And so it's just been part of our lives since we've lived there. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. over the years, there have been um, different groups involved and, and different people that come and go uh, to help, help the alewives. And it's just been very, very exciting. And every spring, um, they arrive. Mm -hmm. um, Russ, tell us, what, what's an alewife? <laughs> Not all of our listeners know. Well, it's a type of herring. Um, and it's an anadromous fish, um, which uh, lives in salt water and uh, breeds in freshwater. And they're probably nine or ten inches long. Um, and we have thousands of them that come up uh, the fish ladder every spring. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Deb, tell us a little bit about the, the history of this particular um, site. Um, I understand it goes back um, into the 1800s when the two towns said, we need to, to do something about the fish run. How did that come about? That's right. Well. 
Well, there's a, a fresh a freshwater falls that comes from Damerscotta Lake to Great Salt Bay, um, right in the location of the fish ladder. And those falls attracted people early on in settlement um, to establish mills. And it was actually the Maine State Legislature at the end of the, in the late 1700s that said to the towns, you really need to provide fish passage because it was being blocked by the mills. So in 1830, the um, towns built a fish ladder. Mm. And uh, would Native Americans been using um, the, the fish runs before that? Oh, most, most definitely. Right. Um, that was, uh, my background is in prehistoric archaeology, and there are archaeological sites all around that um, falls, and they would certainly have come in the spring where the fish would have, they would have um, harvested the fish, and, and many of the animals and birds that were attracted to the area because of the fish. Mm. So it seems like there was a, this early conflict between um, kind of the industrial age, which was just coming about, and um, the agrarian age in which people may have harvested um, fish, um, both uh, Native Americans and, and settlers, for various purposes. What were alewives used for in those early days? Well, alewives certainly were a source of food for people and an important source of food. And they would have used them fresh. They would have salted them um, to preserve them. And that would be a, a long term, um, many hundreds of years, um, they were salting them and then smoking them. And smoking was a pretty traditional way to preserve them as well. Mm -hmm. So tell us uh, w what you've discovered about the, these two towns getting together and, and supporting the fish ladder. What, what, what do you know about the earliest um, aspects of this ladder? Well, basically, the two towns, because they both each border the fish ladder, Nobleboro to the west or to the east, and Newcastle to the west, um, jointly were given the rights by the legislature um, to harvest the fish. And in having those joint rights, they have jointly maintained the fish ladder um, and built it and maintained it since that time, and collaborated pretty much on the whole harvesting operation. So um, it's interesting that towns would get the the license to to harvest the fish. What did what what was the practical aspect? Did, did a town employee do that, or did they lease those rights? How did, how did um, those fish get harvested? Both, both of those things happened. Um, right now, we have town employee that does that, um, but in the past, they've certainly been leased, um, and sometimes to the detriment of the run, because oftentimes the commercial value um, you know, would outweigh the maintenance of the fish ladder, and you see that through the years. Hmm. Uh, Russ, tell us a little bit about um, what you when you first moved there, what you saw in terms of, of a fish passage and um, what you're working on? Well, the fish passage has been, uh, was built out of stone. It was laid in clay uh, years ago, and uh, it was old and decrepit then. And over the years, we would do little Band-Aid fixes, and the fish would make it up amazingly every year. Um, but the, uh, we would spend a lot of time cleaning out stones and, and just trying to make it a little more efficient so I can, I can imagine myself as a kid um, playing in, in ditch water, you know, because it was fascinating to see what would happen. So you guys are still doing that. <laughs> we, we play in the water every, every spring, yeah. Uh -huh. It's a lot of fun. And what's really exciting is to see, you know, what the work that we've done is working. So tell us about well. the phases that you've been involved in. And Russ, you get us started in terms of when you got started, what were your initial goals? And I understand that you've done it purposefully in phases because of, of cost and, and pr perhaps practical reasons. Mm -hmm. We started in uh, 2007 with the real official, um, if you will, uh, rebuilding of the fish ladder. We had a section down by the what's called the footbridge, which goes over the stream, and uh, there was a wall that was falling in, and there was a house that was right, right near that wall, and so we rebuilt that section first, and then we moved up to the top of the ladder, and we probably replaced, I want to say, 15, 20 pools, Deb? 20 pools. 20 pools, yeah. Um, so describe what, what, what this what looks like. It's kind of hard on the radio, but um, this is a, um, a stream, but talk about these pools. Each of the pools, um, they are about 10 to 12 inches uh, higher or lower than, than its adjoining pool. And um, there's a what's called a weir, which goes between uh, from each pool. And they're 18 to 24 inches wide. And so the fish have this 10 to 12 inch rise or drop. Um, and the pools uh, vary in size, but there's a there's a area um, that the um, fish ladder engineer. Uh, we worked with Kurt Orvis. Curtis from, Orvis. And uh, he did the fish ladder design. And it's, um, <clears throat> it's actually very precise 
but it's made it's built to make it look like it's been there for uh, many years mm. so it's, it works very efficiently so so describe you know as you've seen the fish come year after year um, what differences you've seen from when you started when the fish ladder was was decaying and what you're seeing now with with some of the new pools you'd see a lot of areas early on where the the fish were just struggling to make it up and they'd make it you know three quarters of the way up this particular uh, jump if you will and then they'd fall back and they start again and try again and and uh, now with the new pools where they're able to easily uh, make it from one pool to the next. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is that the, the fish have a lot more energy. Uh, once they get up into the new section, you could just tell they're a lot livelier. Um, they just have a lot more energy and, you know, they, they fly into the lake. Mm -hmm. and, and Deb, um, what's driving these fish? <laughs> Why are they trying to get upstream? Oh, well, they're ready to spawn. <laughs> the water warms up, and all of a sudden, it's just that drive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So they're, they're, uh, it really is a water temperature-driven uh, energy, and uh, once the water warms up, they are absolutely leaping up to the, to the lake in fresh water to spawn. Mm -hmm. And, and um, the, the notion of, of spawning, do you know much about um, technically what's happening? Are they um, when they get up into the lake? Well, both males and females um, go up, and you can actually see the difference between the two. The females are larger, and, of course, they're carrying the eggs. Um, and they will, as, as I understand it, they return to where they were um, spawned. Spawn. And, uh, you know, we'll create the, the little nest type of an area, and uh, the males will fertilize um, the eggs that are laid by the, the female. And then, so the young um, uh, eggs, that, the eggs hatch, and they spend um, time in the fresh water, and when and, do they go back to the ocean? And they actually, sp they, they spend variable amounts of time. They start, uh, some of the young start going out as early as July. Hmm. Um, so if they spawned in May, they could um, stay up there for a month or two. Many of them also stay until late November. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on where the spawning occurs. Sometimes as the um, heat of the summer dries up the lake, uh, small fry will get stuck up in um, streams and can't get out. So when the, the rains of the fall come, they'll be sort of liberated. Flushed downstream. And you'll see they come back in huge schools. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, just as they go up in schools, um, these tiny fish will back into the fish ladder and uh, make their descent. And it's very exciting. There's mm. As much as the spring um, run is exciting, the fall run is full of birds and excitement. And um, I, we should just uh, remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about restoring alewives, the story of the Damariscotta Mills fish ladder. We're talking with Deb Wilson, who's a select um, woman or select person, I guess, in Nobleboro, and Russ Williams, who's a volunteer and a, a riparian owner of uh, land adjacent to the fish ladder. Um, so you're waiting for this year's passage. What's, what's, um, what, what, what are you seeing that makes you believe that it's coming soon? Well, Russ lives up on, uh, on the ladder itself. I live on the bay down below, and you start seeing um, about two weeks ago a gathering of birds. There are osprey back now and eagles. There are blue herons. There are uh, cormorants, and they all start gathering. We've actually seen seals in the water, and everybody's waiting for the fish. <laughs> and how about fishermen? Uh, do, you, do you harvest at this time? Oh, no, you have to wait. In fact, in Nobleboro, Newcastle, we have a harvesting plan, and we don't harvest uh, until the week. fish have been in for a week. Okay. So we, let, we consider the first week of fish to be potentially the strongest, and we just let them go up and don't start harvesting until, um, until a week of the run. And we want to be sure that we're getting fish up into the lake to you know, meet our, our goals of getting enough fish to you know, reproduce themselves. Mm. So the conservation comes first, and then um, if there's something left over, um, people get the harvest. Conservation and, is definitely important. And who, in this in in this case, or at this time of, of uh, the, the the project, who gets to harvest, and wh where do those fish actually end up? Well, we the town harvests, and we have a fish agent, and we have two other harvesters. All of them have pelagic licenses through the state, um, and. They're harvested now for lobster bait principally, although we still do widow orders, which means the widows of our town get two bushels each. They often trade them for lobster bait, and uh, the primary place those uh, fish go are to lobstermen for bait, okay. although we do have a smokehouse, and uh, some get smoked. Uh -huh. And what's the, the, the procedure for actually catching the fish? 
We have um, built in the late 50s a whole harvesting um, setup that's made of metal and it has two dippers, we call them, that get put down into the water. There are nets. Once the fish go into them, nets close them off and then they're lifted up with a hoist and put into um, a big keeping area and then they go on a conveyor all the way up to a, where they're kind of spit out into uh, bait trays and lobstermen pick them up. Hmm. And and this, so there's a sale of the the uh, fish to um, the lobster folks who are using it for That's bait. That's right. And the town gets those revenues, and that money is is that dedicated to the fish passage and. Absolutely. Okay. Every every dollar goes back into the fish ladder to the facilities. Um, none goes into town revenue. Mm-hmm. So you've you've been involved in in the the creation of a of kind of a community effort to restore these fish ladders um, for a number of years. What's that been like to kind of get people involved in, in this process? Right. It's it's very exciting. Um, you know, it's it's one of the things that draws our community together, and we've been doing it for years. When, when we first moved there in '81, um, I think in '82 or '83 we started what we called the Friends of the Alewives, and it was basically a, a gathering of the community for a potluck um, lunch. Um, one day during the run, and uh, we we thought, well, geez, while we're here, we might as well uh, try to raise a little bit of money to help the fish ladder, and it's just a great awareness <coughs> to uh, you know that the community would come out and and uh, get together. Now we've moved and we've gotten a lot more formal. Uh, we have many many more people involved. We have uh, a number of volunteers. Uh, there's still a core group of probably 15 or so that are on the committee, if you will. Uh, that gets together probably every couple of weeks and meets and organizes our next event. Um, more than likely, it's going to be some sort of fundraising event because we're always doing that. And um, it's just, it's very, very exciting, and it's its great to have new energy come in. Uh, there were a number of years where things went flat in the mills, and, and uh, it was great when, when Deb moved into town and, and uh, brought in some, some super energy. And so it's just, it's nice to have it back on track and, and uh, really focusing on the, the rebuild of the ladder. And and what's the scope of, of this work? What's uh, what, do you, what have you raised so far, and what do you need to raise? Well, amazingly, we've been at this for five years, and we've raised about $350,000. And we need another, say, 400000 um, okay, so you're kind of in the halfway zone. We're about at the halfway point. Yeah, and in terms of the fish ladder itself, um, at that same point, you're about halfway done in the construction part. We are. The yeah. upper section, 20 pools, we have completely finished, which means that we have reconstructed the whole um, upper section and... Um, it's all stone-faced to look like the old ladder. It's terrific. Mm. Um, this past winter, we did 22 new pools, but we did those in concrete. We still need to stone-face them. So, so you're doing that in w- when you can get to them. And so yes. after the runs or, or in the in the wintertime, you get to that stage. Right, and we're quite constrained because we need to leave the ladder open for fish passage from about April 1st until late November. So we have to work with the fish and the ladder and... Uh, it's a challenge. <laughs> we'll come back to um, some of the work that you're doing to involve people in the local community to support this effort in a few minutes. But um, let's go now to talk with uh, John Grabowski. John is with the Gulf of Maine Research Institute down in Portland. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, John. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. That's a, a relatively new um, entity um, on the coast of Maine doing wonderful research. Tell us a little bit about the, the institute. Ooh. Yeah, the GMRI is in Portland, Maine. We're a nonprofit, and we're really working on the complex challenges of ocean stewardship and economic growth in the Gulf of Maine bioregion. So, you know, we're using a dynamic fusion of science, education, and community programs to achieve these goals. And and and, and your 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 particular um, research interests? Yeah, I'm a so I'm a research scientist. And I'm a benthic ecologist, and this really means that I study animals that live on the bottom of the ocean, like oysters, monkfish, scallops, and lobsters. And uh, my research at GMRI over the past decade has really focused on the impact of habitat degradation, restoration, and protection, you know, things like marine closures uh, and efforts to restore habitats on food web interactions and ecosystem services such as fish productivity. You know, and I'm also really interested in, you know, other factors that affect populations of economically valuable fish, lobsters, and bivalves. You know, for instance, I've really worked on how cod and herring baits have affected this recent boom in lobsters in the Gulf of Maine. So that's where the alewives come in. 
Yes. And so, uh, yeah, back in, you want me to talk a little bit about yeah, uh, some, of, some of my research in that area? Yes, please. Yeah, and back in uh, 2002 when I came to Maine, I was really focused on working with the lobster industry to, to test something they had really been suspicious of for a while, uh, that they were farming lobsters by putting all this herring bait in their traps that basically provides a free meal for smaller lobsters that are not the legal size yet. And so uh, what we were able to do was go out to Monhegan, where they seasonally close the fishery in the summer and the fall, uh, you know, when lobsters are growing, and compare growth rates in the diet of lobsters uh, at that site to nearby open sites up in, like, the George's Islands near Cushing, Maine. And what we were able to find is that not only are lobsters consuming a lot of herring bait, but it's affecting their growth rates, and this can result in a substantial uptick in lobster production in the Gulf of Maine. So um, alewives are pretty important um, because they're part of, of the bait that, that lobstermen use. They are, and they're really important in the spring when herring isn't readily available. You know, it's a really good source of fresh bait at a time when uh, you know, they don't have other sources. So it's, it definitely plays a pivotal role in the lobster fishery. And, and what, what, what's your sense of the health of the lobster fishery and, and, and how bait fi- figures into this? There's no question that, uh, you know, it's an important vehicle in the fishery and that uh, lobster um, kind of herring interactions really revolve around this central uh, connection of two fisheries that wouldn't otherwise be connected. Um, and my sense is that, uh, you know, we've had some management initiatives that have pushed herring landings efforts further offshore and potentially affected the availability. Um, so that's where I think, uh, you know, efforts, to improve our alewife stocks could be important for not only, uh, you know, a number of, of, of reasons around people that might fish the alewives or be interested in, in alewife um, populations, but also uh, for the lobster industry. So this is um, an, um, an example of, of the web of, of life. It doesn't go directly from um, herring to lobster because lobsters don't necessarily use herring as a, as a food source unless they find a dead one on the, on the bottom. But Correct. As, as fishermen come into the picture, um, what you're discovering or, or substantiating is that lobstermen are, are basically feeding the lobsters and their source um, uh, for that feed is, is, is often herring. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that, and what, what you have to think about is that, you know, lobster on the bottom would normally be uh, you know, eating urchins and clams, and these are things with not a lot of muscle tissue or crabs relative to the amount of shell that they're processing. Meanwhile, you put this lipid-rich bag of herring on the bottom, it's a really good prey source. Uh, for the for sublegal lobsters that you know that are going to be thrown back if they're caught and are readily going in and out of these traps to feed on this you know free lunch. Great, and and what's 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 next in in this field of research for you? Well, I, I I've been trying to work with a number of economists and oceanographers and ecologists to really try to think about how the lobster fishery, the herring fishery, and the groundfish fishery are linked. Uh, and so that we could look at not only, you know, the ecological interactions, but, you know, what are the consequences of changes in the abundances of these species or the economics of them? And how can things like price changes affect how we harvest these species and, and the, you know, affect the natural science as well? So uh, everything is connected. Definitely. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns this morning, John. My pleasure. John Grabowski is a researcher with the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns as we talk about restoring alewives, We're talking about the story of the Damariscotta Mills fish ladder. In the studio with us are Deb Wilson, who's a selectman, select woman uh, from Nobleboro, and Russ Williams, who is a volunteer uh, active in the, in, the, in the effort to restore these fish ladders in uh, Damariscotta Mills. Um, you can participate at some point if you'd like to give us a call with your questions or your comments. Give us a call at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. 625 Deb, I know that you've, you're serving on the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Council, the, the group working on alewives. Tell us a little bit about that work and, and how that kind of connects to with, with um, what John was talking about. I'm on the advisory panel there, and and basically... The Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission manages fisheries inshore, three, uh, inside the three-mile limit, and along the East Coast. 
and alewives, a river herring, actually blueback herring and uh, alewives, are one of the species that are managed. And there has been a huge concern lately that there's been a very low abundance of these species uh, all along the East Coast. In fact, Maine is one of the few places where we have managed our fishery fairly well. And uh, while we have a depressed population, we don't have, we still have enough to harvest. So is that because um, the harvesting is happening perhaps out to sea, um, not necessarily at the fish ladder? I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, certainly um, the offshore harvesting midwater trawl boats um, and that sort of thing, they changed from um, harvesting with, with uh, purse seine boats to midwater trawl boats. They're a lot less, um, they're basically a lot less, um, trying to think of the selective, word. Selective. Thank you. Perfect word. Selective. Um, so that, that is an issue, and they're really addressing that right now. They um, have got observers on boats and looking um, for time area closures in places where alewives have been observed. So we're looking for some, some good um, response from... So, so these midwater trials were perhaps trying to look for other species. They weren't necessarily trying to oh, catch Oh, absolutely alewives. not. The alewives, alewives were just got scooped up. They would be bycatch. Okay. And what is bycatch for in the herring fleet could actually be a whole year's run. Um, for you know some of the small rivers and streams where her where river herring um, come in Maine, so right. um, pretty big deal. Uh, and I think also um, just like Damer Scott and Mills, the the care of the um, access to fresh water has not always been optimal. And there's a lot of um, a lot of people looking at it right now. But if um, streams and rivers where alewives passed up to spawn get blocked with um, whether it's sticks and stones or what have you. Um, and aren't tended, um, they really, you know, fish passage can be um, really impeded. And I think the point that both um, you and Russ are making is that um, we can take care of, of uh, alewives and river herring um, at the local level. We can't take care of them out to sea so well. Uh, that's, that's there's a lot of other right. factors out there. So if we can focus on what we can control, um, we're all better off. Let's go now to um, someone who's, who's um, making their living at harvesting alewives and, and is active in something called the Alewife Harvesters of Maine. We're going to talk with Jeff Pierce now. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Jeff. Oh, thank you, Ron. It's good to be with you. Tell us a little bit about the Alewife Harvesters of Maine. Um, the Alewife Harvesters of Maine is a group of um, harvesters, um, biologists, uh, conservation committee, and um, just uh, general people in the public that's interested in preserving our heritage. And and how um, how did that come about? Um, I, I assume that you're you're a relatively new organization um, responding to some threats to alewives. Um, the alewife harvesters in Maine came about in uh, 2007 in a response to uh, Amendment Two. Um, the uh, alewife harvesters have basically had been left alone to their streams in their towns, and uh, we were we were threatening to be shut down by federal managers. And that's because so, uh, that's because they were seeing a reduction in stocks, um, basically coastwide. Coastwide, yes. So up and down the east coast. So our group, um, we I I gathered the group together, um, and we decided that instead of trying to fight the regulatory uh, purpose, we wanted to be part of it to show them that we are a sustainable group, and what we've been doing is, uh, has enhanced the runs in Maine. And we couldn't be treated the same as North Carolina or uh, Massachusetts because um, every state has their own individual problems for their decline. So um, what, how did you prove to um, the federal um, regulators that um, Maine's alewives were being sustainably harvest, harvested? Well, we, we, we had started in, actually in 2006 with a program that uh, with the, the state managers and um, local people, we... Uh, we wanted to see where our fish was going and what our population was doing. This was before Amendment 2. So we started doing scale sampling so we could uh, age, age our fish a year and sex them to see what our return rates were. And this helped to work into the Amendment 2 process to prove that we were sustainable. And um, these guidelines have now been used by other states. Um, and it's a fairly economic way to do it. Um, the scale sampling is done by the harvester in Brook. And these can be done on runs that are not harvested. 
to prove that they can sustain a fishery or not. So we, we take the scales, they send them in, and they read them. So it's really a good collaboration between stakeholders and um, managers. And, and what did you find when you began to do that scaling work? What did you find about the age um, uh, of, of the herring population? We found that our main, a lot of Maine's runs uh, have a really good age structure. Um, I happened to, in my run, have an eight-year-old fish, which was amazing and unheard of. It had spawned uh, seven times. Um, and we had some other runs that had, uh, had fish that had spawned six and seven times, which is unheard of down on in the southern coast, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. So we found we were in really good shape. And then we found there were some runs that we thought were in good shape that were on the cusp of being over-harvested. So it was an eye-opener for both the harvester and managers for stuff we had taken uh, for granted. So by that you mean that the, um, the, the age distribution in those streams, you had a lot younger fish. You didn't have those returning spawners. We didn't have the returning spawners, or we had uh, more males females, um, which we really want more females to males because one male fish can uh, spawn uh, with a lot more females than he can with just, uh, than females can with just one male. Right. Tell us a little about your work um, as, a, as a harvester. Um, you manage a, a fish passage, I understand? I, man- I manage the Dresden uh, Mills uh, run. Um, it's something I, it was a closed run for a number of years. We were able to open it up uh, 12 years ago, and it's been just another great success story. Like uh, Amherst Scotter Mills has had a tough run of it, and now they've they've got a super fish passage coming back for the because of the results of uh, Deb Wilson and Mark Becker and stuff uh, in their group. Great. And and what was the key to getting that uh, the Dresden um, fish passage open? What do you think turned the tide, so to speak? Um, some of it was. Um, Putting, putting some restrictions on poaching. Um, the state had, you know, was open to states' rights, so uh, a lot of people would go take their one bushel, but that one bushel seemed to be an awful lot of, of fish, and, and uh, nobody had any control over what happened in there. So it had been closed because fish passage issues. Um, there was a number of beaver dams that prohibited the fish from getting to the bog. Um, we now stock the bog, and I, I have built a temporary ladder for the Dresden bog as there's still no fish ladder to uh, get the fish in the bog after they replace the dam. And this, is, we find, is one of the bigger problems in the, all the fisheries throughout the East Coast is there's, uh, there's poor fish passage, there's uh, harvesting at sea, and there's other water quality issues. Um, small mesh exemption boats take an awful lot of fish as well as the, you know, um, with the, with the midwater trawlers, and we're seeing that as part of the, some of the problems. So there's no one problem that put a silver bullet on it. The, it seems to be that there's a number of problems that you can have two or three problems for a run, and those can be cured locally if um, you have people interested. That's great. And tell us a little about the uh, kind of a thumbnail sketch of the industry. Um, what's how many uh, folks are harvesting, and and what's the economic impact? The um, there's 41 towns that have rights to harvest in the state of Maine, and right now there's currently 18 fish and runs that can prove sustainability, which is uh, the same number we've had now for about seven years. Um, the economic impact, uh, if we couldn't harvest Elwise, would be devastating to spring lobster. And uh, we figured it would cut it in half. And it's an industry we can't afford to uh, lose in this state. And it brings in roughly, with all the truckers, bait handlers, stern men, and lodging um, meal, meals for people who come see the runs, we figure it's about a $6 million impact over eight weeks. This state, which is a pretty good impact. That is, and and you're beginning to make that message known in Augusta as well. I understand. We've we've had great luck with the marine resources. We have a great team up there with Pat Keller and uh, Terry Stockwell, Nate Gray, and those guys. They do they do a tremendous job of assisting us, and we we assist them. So it's a great partnership that we work with. And Augusta has been really responsible, um, responsive with us. Um, and IFNW is now uh, starting to work with our organization, which is great news because our fish go from 
salt to fresh water, which were under the ju- jurisdiction of marine resources, uh, also once it gets into fresh water, it's uh, IF and W owns a lot of the dams. Right. It's a, one of those things where, where when we made our management systems, we didn't think about alewives and salmon and things that use both fresh and salt water. Well, there, there, there was actually some fish passage acts in the early 1800s because they were concerned of all the dam buildings. But we, we had 37,000 miles of uh, river streams in uh, Maine, which is a tremendous amount, and we've got almost as many dams. Um, and some of these dams have been easy dams for uh, fish passage. Some haven't. Uh, Cobsey streams are uh, one that could really use some fish passage. So now we try to balance fish ladders, costs, and the dam removal. We take out some of these dams and we leave, lose a lot of lakefront homes, become streamfront homes, and that reflects on the local tax base. So there's some pushback on that entity because, you know, the main uh, has a poor tax base as it is. Right. So we're trying not to impact other property owners, but we're also trying to, you know, conserve our species. Well, thanks so much for being with us this morning on uh, Talk of the Towns. Jeff, I know that there's at least one more radio show that we can do um, talking about the St. Croix River, but we'll save that for another time. We could spend a lot of time on the St. Croix issue, and uh, there's some good things happening with it, and, you know, we look forward, and if anybody cares for any more information from us, they could go to www.lifeharvesters.org and... uh, they can contact any of our board of directors. We're really accessible and available for anybody. Great. Thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns. Thanks, Ron. I appreciate your time. That's Jeff Pierce of the Alewife Harvesters of Maine. You're listening to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. Um, we're talking about restoring alewives and uh, the story of the Damariscotta Mills fish ladder. Deb Wilson is with us uh, from Nobleboro and Russ Williams, a uh, volunteer in, in the same community, um, working on restoring the fish ladder at Damariscotta Mills. Um, uh, you can participate as well. Um, uh, give us a call at one 866 625-9378 here on Talk of the Towns. Um, Jeff, uh, excuse me, uh, Deb or, or Russ, comments on either of these last two two uh, guests that we've had on? Um, you you know uh, Jeff and, and you've worked with him a little bit. I think we both know Jeff and he's a, a wonderful advocate for um, alewives and he, he has been so active um, help in, in facilitating um, sort of the position we are now in Maine of uh, being able to continue our harvest. Uh, so we're very pleased with that. And it's, it seems like this is another example in Maine where Maine is doing things a little bit differently. You must see that on the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Council. Well, you certainly do. I that, mean, it that, really whether is. it's lobsters, where we've had a long-term conservation program, or alewives, where there's active community involvement in making sure that these fish survive. Well, it really makes you very pleased with our Department of Marine Resources. We have some great advocates there for us um, who have really gone to bat for, um, at least in you know my realm, the, the alewife fishery. Um, we wouldn't be harvesting today if it weren't for the folks at DMR. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go now to uh, Dennis Smith. Dennis is from the town of, or the village of Otter Creek in the town of Mount Desert, Mount Desert Island. And uh, Dennis is a, a fisheries biologist by um, um, his own experience. Um, Dennis, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Good morning. Thank you very much. You've heard some of what we've been talking about on today's program, I understand. Tell us a little bit about your connection to alewives, especially in the, in the Ellsworth um, area. Yes, Ron. Uh, first off, I'd like to say congratulations to those folks from Damascotta Mills. What a great job they're doing. Uh, yeah, I've been involved with alewives since the uh, early 70s. I was actually I was harvesting uh, the long pond drainage uh, in the 70s, and... Uh, that was uh, quite a learning experience. Uh, I, at the time, the state law said that we only had to release one day a week for, for spawning purposes, and I, I didn't feel that was sufficient, so I was letting them go three days a week. Uh, but uh, and then I've, I've paid a lot of attention to all the alewife runs in Hancock County, especially all the way down to Cherryfield and Narraguegas River, and. Uh, I have to say that we've, we're just scratching the surface on, on the potential of the, of the runs that we could have in size-wise because uh, I, I was 
old enough to have seen some of the big runs on the Narragansett River when it was bank bank to bank, and uh, you just don't see that now. Uh, so, so as you observed, like places like Long Pond, um, what did you see um, in terms of uh, uh, what was what was a healthy ecosystem, and how did alewives fit into that? Uh, not only uh, was I a harvester, I was also a, a, I've been a lifelong angler, so I would go into Long Pond in the summer and uh, see the interaction between the salmon and the, the bass and the uh, alewives, the juvenile alewives would inhabit the pond, and it was. So exciting, because the salmon, the, uh, the, uh, the, el- the young alewives tend to inhabit the middle of the lake in the summer, and the salmon would come under, up, up underneath those and drive schools of these alewives. The air would be silver with the juvenile alewives and the salmon chasing them. Uh, everything, everything fed on the alewives. I mean, it was just an amazing situation. Uh, you know, right from the seals, I've actually seen the seals right up in the fishway. Uh, chasing the alewives, and uh, then the ospreys and the eagles and the uh, cormorants and the blue heron, and it's just a, such an important species that I, I can't even—I could talk forever on how and how exciting they are. Uh, you're sharing that that excitement with our guests here in the studio as well. What's what's happened with Long Pond now? Um, you've been active, and others have been active in, in restoring that fish fish ladder there as well. Yeah. Uh, it's been very interesting. Uh, David Lamont, who's uh, been spearheading this work uh, of restoring the fish passage there, uh, he's done a great job, and consequently we've gotten, uh, of course, it's, it never will match Damaris Carter in terms of numbers of alewives, but we have a, a good a good seed last year, uh, I think approximately 13,000 fish. We've had that number for the last three or four years. So uh, we're looking for great things. And the, the state has been helpful uh, as DMR, and I share their sentiments, the folks you have on with you, uh, how, what a great help DMR has been. Uh, they have been uh, supplementing the runs with some stocking when they had uh, uh, fish available from other areas. To, they trucked them down into Long Pond. Uh, the thing that we're finding is that, and uh, one of your guests alluded to the water temperature issue, uh, the fish, we have, let's see, I think there are five, four, four different fish ladders fish have to go through and four different impoundments. So what happens is unless those fish go up, real, go up early, they don't go to the, 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 big, the main headwater, which is Long Pond, 900 acres, to spawn. They spawn in the smaller impoundments below that, and that seems to impact the total overall return, you know, in several years. So you're generally hopeful about the, the future, um, Dennis, as you look um, both in the Long Pond area and, and down east? Yes, I am. I, one of the things, uh, I've been a proponent. I've, I've watched the, uh, the state uh, supplementing these runs with, with truck, alewives trucked to the headwaters and noticed how successful that has been, not only in our area but on the Kennebec River. And uh, so I've become a real proponent of this. As, as a way to jumpstart runs, I mean, obviously, if you if you uh, improve the fish passage, uh, the runs will increase over time. But if you don't have a, a, a large number to begin with, you only have small numbers. You're talking several generations before you're going to see any uh, real jump in the population. So this uh, this business of, of supplementing the runs, one of the most successful alewife runs in the state is the Union River. And that is sustained entirely by trucking. Mm. And I believe this year they're going to stock 150,000 into Graham Lake by truck. And they have upwards of half a million fish each year. Mm. So uh, it's just, there's so many exciting things going on, and, but yet there's so many areas where we need to improve fish passage. Uh, Jones Pond in Goolsboro is one that comes to mind. They have no fish passage there. And I've been working uh, with the people from Jonesboro, uh, from uh, Goldsboro, to uh, get fish passage there, and we'll continue to work on it. Great. Well, thanks so much for being with us this morning, Dennis. Thank you. 
Dennis Smith from the village of Otter Creek, a longtime angler and an activist in looking at alewives as a as an important part of the food chain, uh, both human food chain and the natural food chain. Um, you're tuned to talk of <coughs> the towns, and we certainly invite your participation in this conversation about restoring alewives. Give us a call at one eight six six. Six two five nine three seven eight. That's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. There goes the phones. So we'll see if we can uh, find uh, what people are thinking about, what they um, want to ask questions of our guests. We're in, in the studio with us, Deb Wilson, uh, select person from Nobleboro, and Russ Williams, a volunteer. Let's go to our first phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, hello. I really appreciate this program. Um, we have uh, here in Orland, Maine. Uh, you know, we have a situation where we have a dam and we have a fish ladder, which isn't very good. Uh, it was put in by, verse, uh, by the paper mill, and now they don't want to maintain the dam any longer. So they're giving it back to the town, and we've decided to accept that. But uh, I'd love to have some comments, uh, uh, examination of if we decided to breach the dam, what, what effect would that have on the run? Um, if we decided to maintain, do we have to maintain the dam in order to continue to harvest uh, alewives, which we have done for many, many years? Um, what effect would all of this have? Uh, I'll take the answer off the line. Thank Great. You. Well, thanks for that call, and thanks for the work that you're doing to, to uh, think about your own community. Uh, uh, Deb, any response to this, per- this, this caller in terms of how a town might take this, this on? Well, if that... If, if we were your town, we would be very excited about that uh, possibility. Um, I don't know your dam specifically, but um, often if it depends on if the dam is impounding water behind it and what kind of effect that would have on the land behind it, whether or not you would want to take it out. Um, of course, taking it out would certainly ease fish passage because then they wouldn't have that impediment and you wouldn't have to worry about a fish ladder. Um, so if there would be no impact from what's happening upstream, um, I think municipalities taking on um, projects like this is wonderful. certainly takes committed people. We have um, gathered around us just an enormous group of people who care about it, um, and I think it, it really takes that in a town. But if you can do it, I think it would be wonderful. And any resources for um, this caller or other or their other community members who might want to learn more about what their own situation is and, and what their options are? Well, I would think um, what comes to mind immediately is Department of Marine Resources would look at it with them um, mm-hmm. and just help evaluate um, the impact of dam removal versus um, leaving it in. And I, I'm not sure what other organizations I would... Um, well, probably the alewife harvesters of Maine might have some resources. They might. So again, um, if you uh, look on the websites uh, for alewife harvesters, um, you'll find some information there. We do have a second call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi. Thanks for the show. It's really interesting. Um, I have two concerns, one uh, locally oriented and the other not so locally. Uh, I wonder, just a point of biology, is it that any stream which runs from a, an inland, marshy, lakey, swampy area into the ocean is potentially a, uh, an alewife uh, artery, uh, or are there only certain ones? And if it is true that anyone is potentially, uh, what about things like culverts and such uh, in the road, uh, which might provide... Uh, uh, unpassable hurdles. Uh, how can we increase the number of alewife arteries, which there are? Uh, I don't believe there are any in my particular community, but there may be able to be some. Great. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested in that. And then I, I, I just couldn't help but prick up my ears when I heard about the midwater trawlers uh and the impact that that might be making on the whole uh development strategy i don't know whether you care to say anything more about that but uh. well thanks for your call this morning um why don't we take one more call and then we'll see if there's some some answers to some of these go ahead with your question or comment please hello um this is margaret again from orland and i didn't hear any comments about what effect uh breaching our dam uh, would have on being able to harvest uh, the alewives, uh, and that's been an important source of revenue for us. Great. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we can get an answer to that question. Thanks for your call again. 
Well, I can answer the, um, the harvesting question right away, which is um, once you've reached the dam, um, you would have to start counting fish and determine um, and actually do what Jeff Pierce said, which was to get scale samples taken and see what you have for a population of fish. And then there would be an analysis of those fish, um, how much, what area they have for spawning and upstream. And then finally, you would have to determine that any harvesting would be sustainable of the run. So it, it's a, it, it's it a process. Be, it's, it's definitely a process, a process probably right. a five-year process. But sounds like um, there would be some help to, to, to Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Well, the second caller had to, um, a question about are all streams alewife streams? And if so, what can we do about that? And, and our guests here are saying we don't know the answer to that, but there certainly are traditional alewife runs, and we, we, you could find that out um, by getting in touch with the Department of Marine Resources, perhaps, or, or local harvesters. Yeah. And, and actually, his, his, historical records would be very helpful in that, just to determine whether or not, um, you know, I know back in, in town reports they talk about um, alewife runs and that sort of thing, because any harvesting was always um, went through the town. Mm. So you could find out um, about that. And in terms of culverts, that's a really good question. Um, and there are, are grant monies available. Should it be determined that a run, you know, would be viable in an area that's blocked with a culvert um, to make culverts that are able to pass fish. Mm. And I know that the folks down, working down east on salmon have some wonderful examples of, of targeted work to remove culverts and put in something that really works. And it's, it's not, not a fish passage. It's basically um, a different kind of culvert that Correct. leaves the bottom um, natural and just uh, spans that, that mm -hmm. um, um, with, a, with a half culvert, really. That's uh, correct. Right, right. Well, thanks for those calls. We may have some others. 1-866-625-9378. Um, Russ, bring you back into the conversation. What keeps you going um, to, to do this work? And then we'll talk about some of the events that you've got planned. What, what keeps you going? Um, just the excitement of every spring um, with all the bird life. We've, Deb has mentioned it, and others have mentioned uh, the, the bird life, and it, everybody, all the all the species, um, sort of migrate to the mills, and they do, uh, I'm sure, to other rivers uh, up and down the coast. Uh, but it's very exciting, and, and uh, it's it's a real unique uh, piece of nature that that we can um, watch right up close. And, it seems uh, like you've you've kind of use that to bring the community <coughs> together. So it's not just um, uh, uh, um, a fish passage building, it's a community building mm -hmm. effort. It's been a part of our community for, you know, for forever, yeah. ever almost. And yeah, uh, yeah everybody uh, really, really enjoys it. And, and we do, as you mentioned, we do have uh, festivals and events that we, we uh, hold to raise money for the fish ladder restoration. So tell us a little about what's coming next. Um, first, first of all, you're waiting with bated breath for the fish to come this year. Yeah, and, that's and you'll be people people lining the, the banks and, and watching that. What happens in, in uh, Memorial Day, at Memorial Day? Memorial Day weekend is our big festival uh, where we'll have a three-day festival and it's all homegrown. It's local, it's fun, um, you know, there's not a lot of fried dough, not that there's anything wrong with fried dough, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's all locally grown. We have a bake sale and uh, we have t-shirts and things like that. And um, we have uh, an antique car show. This will be our second year we're doing an antique car show. And the food is incredible. Uh, we have a chicken barbecue, a pig roast, and this year we're talking about having lobster rolls on Monday. So well, make sure that people know that those lobsters are eating herring. <laughs> no question, no question. And uh, so it's just a lot of fun. And it, it starts uh, Friday evening with an art sale uh, at one of the local galleries right in the mills and goes right through uh, until uh, Monday afternoon and this year as we did two years ago we're having a $10,000 raffle which is always very exciting we sell tickets for $100 and and uh, the, the winner gets 10,000 we get 20,000 we're limiting it to 300 tickets and so there's just a lot of buzz in the community and, and uh, folks come from ever from um, all over the place. I, I've traveled a number of different places in the country and, and they'll say, well, where are you from? And I say, well, I live in Damascotta Mills. Oh, I've been to Damascotta Mills. And, you know, more than likely they've been in my backyard. Um, it's just a very, very exciting thing. And then um, other, other events during the, the, during the year? Yeah, we had in the fall, we have a soup and chowder festival, um, which piggybacks the uh, pumpkin fest in Damascotta, which you may have heard of. And uh, we have all the neighbors put together soups and chowders and corn chowders and fish chowders and things like that. And, and that's a lot of fun. And then we do a bean supper in the wintertime for a fundraiser. So we're, we're constantly looking at ways to raise money to continually 
restore the fish ladder. And what's, what's next in terms of the construction phase? You said relining some of the concrete with actual um, native stone? Actually, I think what we're thinking is that we will um, fix the rest of the ladder in concrete and then take our time doing the stonework. Um, because you can kind of fit that in when weather conditions and other conditions are right. <coughs> Excuse me, we can. And uh, what's most important, the fish ladder right now, the original fish ladder, the one that we inherited, is made up of um, resting pools and runs. And the, the runs can be very steep. They can be, you know, four or five feet that the fish have to climb. And then the resting pools are almost like sacks off to the side. So they don't have, um, they're not oxygenated. So that lower section of the fish ladder right now is where we really get, fish get stuck. Mm. And we uh, did some work last year, Department of Marine Resources did fish tagging, and we determined that only about 17% of fish are getting out of that lower section. They're getting bogged down. Mm. So we're um, really anxious to get the concrete pools in so that the fish are actually getting up and then we that we could do the aesthetics. Mm. So uh, as we heard from uh, the woman calling from Orland, um, there may be other communities that are interested in this kind of work. What lessons have you learned about engaging the community in this kind of effort? Um, Deb first. I mean, we, I think we've been very lucky because the fish run in Damascotta Mills is really a, an important cultural feature of our neighborhood and it makes it easier to gather people around a lot. And, and actually, I would guess in communities around here, you had people who worked around the Yale Wives. Mm. Um, and that's been a, a real basis. We have, um, you know, the smokehouse has been running for many years and, and we start around the core mm -hmm. of um, so any community could look at whatever resource they have and start with that core and build from there, basically. I think so, and I, I you know, I think it takes a lot of commitment, a lot of energy. Um, and, it, it's, it, and, and so Russ gets his energy because he's living right there, he sees those. What keeps you involved? <laughs> well, as I said, I live on the bay, and I get to watch all the activity, too. And uh, we're, from our house, we can actually watch the schools of fish coming up towards the ladder and entering the ladder. So every evening we sit on our back porch and watch schools of fish um, as they work their way around our point and up towards the ladder and we watch osprey diving and catching them. We watch eagles jumping out of the tree and chasing the osprey, um, <laughs> making them drop their fish. Right. It's quite a show. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and Russ, before we went on air, you were telling the story of your symbol or your 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 logo and and how you've you've actually saved this. Tell us a, that story again. Yeah, the uh, the logo that we use, um, which you can see at damerscottamills.org uh, on our website, but it's a it's a logo that was a hand cut piece of uh, of um, uh, I want to say not cardboard paper, but um, heavy, uh, heavy stock duty paper. Stock paper yeah. right. And uh, it was done by a local artist, George Mason, back in uh, probably 1983, and when we started up with the Friends of the Alewives. And it's, um, it's just a beautiful piece of artwork, and we've carried it through all the years, and it's now um, on all of our T-shirts and all, everything we, we uh, um, print. Um, it's just a beautiful piece of work. So. Mm. Down in Eastport, they have the cod um, mm -hmm. that they um, raise up and down for the, for the New Year's. I, I don't know if you've seen that, but um, so maybe you need to do a, a, a ball drop with, with the alewife instead of a codfish there. there you go. Next, we actually have, um, have well, we don't have a ball drop, but, <laughs> but we have a, um, a giant alewife weather vane that uh, goes up, and we also have, um, at our festival, we have a 14-foot wingspan osprey that people can come have their picture taking being caught by the osprey as if they were a fish. <laughs> That's great. So all, all kinds of ways to kind of engage the community. So let's let's say that you get the fish passage done you know that's probably another three four years effort based on mm -hmm. what you've told me um what happens next what's what's the long-term view what what do you want for the future of of your community and and the the fish passage i think we will always celebrate the alewives i personally will be enormously relieved to think that the fish ladder i, I you see through the years that interest in it waxes and wanes and the harvesting is a huge important part of it because it keeps people engaged. Um, but I will be relieved if interest wanes. Uh, I, I will know that the fish are getting up. Mm, because that's a, a semi-permanent kind of it's, piece of it, it, architecture. It should be there for the very long term. Right. And how about you, Russ? What's your long-term hope? 
Well, the long-term hope is obviously maintaining the, the run um, because it's such an important piece to the to the lobster industry, and you know we absolutely need to keep that going because um, lobsters are main mm. um, from a lot of people's perspective. Right. But uh, you know the run um, will be a part of Damascotta Mills forever. So. Great. It was there before you came and, and before settlers came, and it'll be there afterwards. That's great. That's great. Well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. And I do want to uh, let you know that next week is a special Talk of the Towns for one we missed earlier in April. And we'll be talking about cyberbullying. So join us next Friday at uh, 10 o'clock. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our wonderful guests this morning, Deb Wilson, a select person from Nobleboro, Russ Williams, a volunteer in the efforts to restore the Demerskata Mills fish ladder. We also talked with John Grabowski of the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, Jeff Pierce of the Alewife Harvesters of Maine, and Dennis Smith, a local angler and a longtime activist in alewife issues. Uh, thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions. Thanks so much to our underwriters. Thanks to Joel Mann for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU.